Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. He and I will be your guide every Tuesday to a grace-infused, cosmopolitan look at the lectionary passages for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the never-changing truth of God's grace as found in these texts with what feels like an ever-changing and sometimes confusing world, and we'll do that all in 25 minutes or less. Jake, once more, again, into the breach, the same old song, although things are, they may be shaking up in the country. Some people are happy, some people aren't, some people are protesting, some people aren't, but we are behind these microphones singing the same old song. That's right, because whether you're protesting or whether you're not protesting, whether life is up or whether life is down, politics are good or politics are tumultuous, the gospel is always still the same. And that's what we do here at Mockingbird. We just sing that same old song over and over and over again. But if you were protesting this weekend, uh, which I wasn't, but I have a lot of friends who did, and, uh, and um, well, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is for you. I had a Catholic friend ask me one time, what are you guys uh, protesting over at that church? I'm like, what do you mean? Well, you're Protestants. What are you protesting? Maybe I'm, I'll join. I used to protest. I'm against a lot of things. So there you go. <laughs> well, for what? us as Protestants, it's never against what we're against. It's what we're for. And uh, we're for Christ's work and less of ours. Why isn't there, aren't there things to protest like in like May? I, just, I remember like <laughs> I was part of the second Iraq war protest movement. And is that always winter? We always like somebody that we don't like. We'll inaugurate in January. Like, I'd be I'd be more of a protester if it was in warm weather. I'm yeah. a slacktivist. I'm I a get slacktivist. it. I get. Yeah. You know what I loved about uh, Sun uh, Saturday though was is that you know over three million people showed up and um, and uh, across 360 cities and. Uh, and you could say, I mean, you know, I'm sure there was a, I mean, there definitely was a lot of negativity and anti-stuff. And to be anti-stuff is one thing. But I mean, I think what we saw overall were people were pro, being pro-women. And, you know, and being pro-women, even though the church has really stunk at this, is a Christian value. And um, anything that seeks to de- demoralize or objectify a part of God's creation, especially that which is created in his image, um, you know, I think is uh, it, sh- it should be protested, and so, but to be pro women is a Christian value, and I think that was good. And I'm pro tests. We need more examinations. Yeah, that's right. I'm for tests. But so we come to Micah chapter uh, Micah chapter six, and uh, you know we are in the season of Epiphany still, and really I think what Eureka, we, I Eureka. thought it was Eureka. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The the liturgical color is paisley. We're getting stoles made right now in a cool frontal. But uh, anyway, um, the the point of Micah is is that when you read the prophets, a great way to read them is is through the eyes, kind of a, as if you're reading a court case. And uh, and uh, the prophet Micah, he opens up chapter 6, and he says, Here's what the Lord says. Uh, Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear the mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. Uh, this is really scary, but what this is, is this is a... Um, 
Uh, That's this... like right now. Our overlord has a con- has a controversy with the people, the press. Oh, for sure, absolutely. <clears throat> you know, and we just have differing facts, but. Um... I'm going to give you some alternative facts on Mike. Yeah, that's so funny. It's in the New Testament. That's right. So, but I mean, here you have, this is basically just God is opening up. And this would have harkened back, you know, whenever Israel was in the wilderness or something like that, or whenever God did something for them, they usually built an altar or gathered a pile of rocks. And uh, basically what's happening here is this is, um, this is a subpoena or this is a charge. And what God is doing is, is he's calling his creation basically as the witness against Israel. And uh, this is a very powerful thing. Do you think like angels were going, all right, Mr. Uh, Olive Tree, you're subpoenaed? All right, Mr. Ox, you're subpoenaed? Like, well, no, he's he's, out- no, he's calling the mountains and all of creation to bear witness against Israel's unfaithfulness. And so, uh, and this is a very powerful thing. And uh, so he doesn't have to subpoena them. No. They just, yeah. he just calls them. It's not even a subpoena. They just, there you go. Yeah, basically. But basically, what's going on here is this is a trial, and Israel's about to lose. And um, and then you get to this bottom part, and here's the epiphany, and where the epiphany is in this Micah text, which is very powerful. It says, with what shall I come before the Lord? This is what Israel asks, and bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And, you know, this is a very powerful thing because this is how we oftentimes think that we relate to God. You know, we have to give to get. We have to um, offer a sacrifice, if you will, in order to be pleasing to him. Uh, Works righteousness. But the epiphany is something else. And uh, this is what he's told you is good. And all of the previous chapters are all about Emmanuel coming to be with us and to save us, which which calls us, when you realize that you've been loved in your own brokenness and in your failure, when you have been found not only not guilty, but totally innocent, well, then this is, becomes an inspiring word for you to walk and do justice and love kindness and walk humbly before your God. And, uh, you know... And uh, that uh, makes you pro something, whether you're protesting or not. Yeah, and the irony of, of the whole thing is that the author, in all sort of relig- religious ritual, right, knows that really we ought to be on the, and in some sense, it, the cost is ourselves or what's dearest to us. And so it, it, he even gets to the place of human sacrifice. And the irony is that God doesn't require the firstborn, but gives his firstborn. Yeah, that that we could be pardoned, and so after like, but, but that's only good news when you hear the the exacting <laughs> demands are, that are the reality of the law. And the law, it's not bad; it's good. It shows us what what the beautiful life looks like. It just we can't do it. So it's funny because then after that, you have this this summary statement of what's required of us to do justice and love mercy. So like you know, it's it's sort of positive and negative. I mean, don't just make, get rid of inequity, but actually love the creation Mm. because it's, it comes from the creator, but none of us can do that. And so where are we left to walk humbly? Because, Mm. because when you know that God doesn't demand your firstborn, but offered his firstborn yeah, and all you can do is receive that in gratitude, then you have no place to stand, but in the place of humility. And Mm. I think that like so much, so many people 
their views of justice in our culture are really about self-justification. So yeah. if you don't like, if you don't like the conservative law and order approach, it's also if it's not just you don't like their ideas. Oftentimes you don't like the people, mm. and, and likewise <laughs> the law and order kind of people look at the social justice crowd. You know, they, they, oh these these hippie socialists, and not, it's not just they don't like the policies; they don't like the people. Yeah. But when, when you realize that self-justification ends in you know you standing for an altar and with nothing really to give and realizing uh, how inadequate you are, then when you realize you're justified, then you can stop demonizing because you, you, you stop idolizing. Yeah, no, that's very powerful. And I love that connection there. And I think that's something for preachers to really tap into is that connection between, you know, should I give my firstborn? Well, no, because the firstborn has been given for you. And uh, then all of these other things become fruit uh, the fruit of faith in the Son of God who's given his life for you. You don't even have to footnote, footnote us on that. Yeah, that's Folks, amazing. Just, yeah. just take it and run with it. <laughs> oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but the next time you see me coming, you better run. All right, let's move on to First Corinthians. One Corinthians. One Corinthians. We're neat. We're we're in it, and uh, this is really, I mean, this is a very powerful. This is all about what preaching is all about, and the power of preaching. You know, most people think that you know uh, that that light that church and life is experienced in you know a rock concert or whatever. But what Paul is really talking about here is that the power and the umph. Of a of a of a service is in the preaching of the gospel. What about the organ? Mm, mm, it's a close second, but uh, it it doesn't compare to the preaching of the gospel. Yeah, they didn't even have organs in Corinth. I would guess. Do you think they had like a mariachi band? Or anything? No, I always picture people playing like you know some sort of pan flute and things like that, and maybe like a three string lyre. But that's what I picture. Well, what are we going to do with this, Jake? What are you going to are you going to preach? Are you going to highlight this text Sunday? Well, um. Actually, I'm uh, I'm uh, not preaching this Sunday. My colleague Jim Monroe is, but uh, I think um, you know I think that this is. So you're not going to crack the Bible the rest <laughs> yeah, of the week. I'm done, man. I've just given up. You know. I think what's really interesting about this is that you know most people they think that wisdom is in what they do, and wisdom is found and 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 strength is found in like signs given. And, uh, and so whether it be giving of the firstborn, that seems awfully wise to appease God, or whether it be, you know, the giving of a thousand rams and 10,000 rivers of oil, you know, that seems like a good thing. Uh, St. Paul says that everything operates a little differently here. This is the flip-flop sense of the gospel, in that in the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the work of God, that, um, that God is destroying the wisdom of man, and that the job of the preacher is to um, actually remind Christians, that all has been done for them, um, and that, uh, but this is foolishness to us always, whether you're a Greek or whether you're a Jew, this is foolishness, the fact that God demonstrates uh, his wisdom in the foolishness of the death of his son Jesus, and that God demonstrates his strength in the death of his son Jesus. Yeah, and I think basically, it, 
what we have here are some of the best summary statements of the gospel ever recorded. And they're ad hoc in response to two perennial temptations that the church always wrestles with, right? One is that here you have the boasting in the eloquence and wisdom of the various teachers that have factionalized the community. So, you know, the first thing is the the gospel negates, like you're saying, it negates reliance, self-reliance and reliance on human Promethean effort or our own ingenuity or our, or our own cultural artifacts or whatever it is that we try to substitute for the unmitigated and gratuitous mercy and grace of God. The second temptation, I think, is to separate the beginning of the Christian life from the pilgrimage that it, that it becomes, or, or justification and sanctification. And so it, he's, you know, Paul here is reminding us the cross of Christ isn't the isn't just the entryway. It's not just alpha. It's omega. It's not just the beginning. It's the end of the road, and it's everything in between. So it's like the Christian life. You know, there's, I think George Hunzinger once said, it, you know, it's, there's a once for all nature to it. You know, you're justified in a definitive way. You're baptized once, and yet there's an again and again to it that we revisit our the reality of our baptism. We revisit our identity as justified sinners, as people who are in constant need of divine mercy. And any higher and deeper comes from the once for all and the repetition again and again. It doesn't you, you don't graduate from the cross of Christ. It's the meat, it's the milk, it is the whole gourmet. It is meal. the whole enchilada as they say. And uh, you know, and really as you uh consume this enchilada or this enchilada actually begins to consume you, uh, you you really do realize the foolishness of the world and the foolishness of thinking that somehow your acts, this becomes the eureka moment, that somehow your doing could garner God's favor at all, um, that he actually needs it. You know, this is one of the things about kind of American religion and especially American Christianity, is that when the gospel becomes secondary, when, uh, when justification becomes secondary to sanctification, what quickly happens over time is that God becomes the passive agent and you become the active agent. It all becomes about your climbing up the ladder to uh, reach God and that somehow he might notice you and say, oh my God, there you were the whole time, as opposed to the other way around, which is uh, justification being the primary thing and the whole thing, then you realize that it's God coming to you and he is the one who is actually making you holy as he forms you into his image through this word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and let us remember here the words of the great Eugene Peterson, that discipleship is about focusing more and more on Christ's righteousness and less and less on our own. I wouldn't tell you what's right or what's wrong. I'm just a singer of songs. But I can take you to a city where a man was crucified. I can tell you how he lived, and I can tell you why he died. I can help proclaim the glory of this mighty King of Kings. Yes, I do it with the songs that I sing. I'm not a great man. And then this, you know, I mean, actually, as you draw closer, as 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 Christ draws closer to you, you really um, get a whole new view of what the Beatitudes are about, which are a gospel reading. And um, 
and this is a very powerful thing, but you really begin to realize it's not, uh, the Beatitudes are not let them be our attitudes, but rather they are blessings given by the Messiah. Look at you with the transition. <laughs> That's pretty good, Boom. isn't it? Yeah. I think Look Robert nice Schuller's, <laughs> yeah, Robert Schuller's book uh, on the, these past, this section is called the be happy attitudes yeah i remember uh in sunday school uh growing up and uh one time they had uh it was let the be attitudes be our attitudes and it was all about a b and we colored the b and stuff like that but what that did was is that really dumped into this idea of blessed are the poor like blessed are you if you're poor in spirit you know it really that uh kind of idea of let them be our attitude something to strive for um, as opposed to a living state and a reality, much like we find in Micah, um, they, they made them something that we became as opposed to uh, a, a prophetic declaration that the Messiah gives as the Messiah, blessings that the Messiah declares because he is the Messiah. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. Do you know how I remember who, which opponents of Jesus didn't believe in the resurrection? How? It's the Sadducees, because they're sad, you see, because they've got no eternal hope. Mm. Oh, that's good. I'm gonna. Like the I'm B, gonna. Tr- attitude. Yeah, I'm gonna good, try right? my best to forget that. <laughs> so, but you see here, and uh, and so here he comes, and and you know Matthew chapter five, what you got going on, is uh, you know Jesus um, is coming down off the mountain like a new Moses, but this time instead of d- d- delivering if then kind of things, he is delivering declarative statements. Yeah, yeah. Richard Rohr has a great book on the Sermon on the Mount, called Jesus' Plan for New World. Anybody listening, if you can get this in the next day or two, I'd highly recommend it. And he basically, it's a great book. It's one of the first, but it's the first Richard Rohr book I read, I ever read. I read it in college. This is the copy I got in college. And I, I love this book. And he, he talks about the Sermon on the Mount as being a foundation for the new world order. And he goes through the Beatitudes, and he has these perspectives, which I think are great. He says, for instance, he'll go, you, you, you shall not kill. That's the traditional challenge of a religious culture. But the problem is, he says, that you, you still nurse anger and accusation. And he says, the way of transformation is go, be reconciled first. Or you shall not commit adultery. That's the old traditional kind of moral maxim. But the problem still remains fantasy and lustful uh, looking and pondering continue. And he says... You know, the third way is the way of seeing demands radical surgery. But he goes through and, and really pulls out, I think, what Jesus is getting at. But then he says that these are foundations for a new world order. And here's a summary of this world order. First, God is a God who can be trusted. God is like a loving father who's involved in our lives and our world. So do not be afraid. Second, that this God alone has the power to affect lasting and real change. Alignment with this kind of truth is to live under the reign of God. Is that this kind of renewal in the reign of God uh, occurs through a purifying journey into powerlessness and back. It's not through religious athleticism, but in powerlessness. Jesus talked about it, then walked it through and invited us to walk in his Pascal mystery ourselves. Four, power unrefined by this journey into powerlessness will always be destructive and self-serving. It is unworthy of our loyalty or our hope. Therefore, we've got to refuse total allegiance to any human system, uh, refuse to idealize or idolize the private self, which props itself up with all sorts of self-delusional myths, and to offer ourselves truthfully to a much larger larger story, because our lives are not about us. And then lastly, this is the motivation for all morality and religion 
is the imitation of God who is love. When religion bases itself in fear, duty, honor, a need for law and order, a need for superior self-image or group cohesiveness, it is corrupt. It looks good and will have many defenders, but is actually at the heart of the problem. The real God is no longer needed or even wanted, and such religion usually becomes the actual enemy of God. The crucifixion of Jesus speaks to this. And he says, this new world order where love and power now work together is seen by Jesus as a wedding banquet. Meals seem to be this constant image of what it's all about. Jesus seems to imply a world that is good, joy-filled, trustworthy, relational, communal, shared, and somehow at the same time local and small scale. He teaches, lastly, a style of listening and learning wisdom that emphasizes prayer and quiet awareness, a social worship within a community tradition, reliance upon the Holy Spirit, a wisdom that will draw out from its storehouse both old and new, and a life of service to the suffering world, which is to imitate God. My God. Richard Rohr. That, Richard Rohr, my friend. I think that's the longest quote in the history of podcasts. It's it really is. good. It, it was like two, two and a half minutes. <laughs> you know, can I, can I say too, um, I think a great resource, if you want to really look at the Sermon on the Mount, is uh, The Merciful Impasse. It's a series of recordings on the Sermon on the Mount for people who've crashed and burned by Paul Zoll. And it's available uh, on the Mockingbird website. And uh, I would check that out and just uh, keyword merciful impasse, but I love what uh, Dr. Zoll says. He says, Jesus Christ brought a fresh and radical insight to the endless human struggle with demand, associating it with weakness rather than with strength, with failure rather than success. He believed that we only begin to meet the requirements of life when we despair of our ability to do so. This is, a, this is, I think, really the summation of all three readings, and this is the epiphany. It's only when we understand what's going on in our lives and our, uh, our inability to do anything about it that we actually can lift up our eyes and uh, try and find where our hope came from, to look to the one, as the psalmist says, who, um, the one who has a blameless life and does what is right and who speaks the truth from his heart. And that is uh, Christ crucified for you, me, and the whole world. And so, happy preaching, everyone. Yeah, and I think, as we said before about d- discipleship focusing on Christ's righteousness and lesson in a row, I think that the Sermon on the Mount, all Christian ethics and all reflection on the Christian life can only be de- descriptive, not prescriptive. And here, it, it starts as, who does it describe? It describes Jesus. Mm. The Sermon on the Mount describes Jesus. And when uh, when we really are swept up into the animating power of the Holy Spirit, uh, we really can't, you can only describe it. You can't control it and Mm. it comes and goes. And again, yeah, we need to go back again and again to to Christ's righteousness. That same old song. And Him crucified. Same old song. Happy preaching every. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, head on over to our website, mbird.com. And if you've got thoughts or feedback, insights you'd like to share, this is a new endeavor, so we'd love to hear them. You send me an email at scottjones at mbird.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.